Today's sponsor is SoFi. SoFi refinances federal and private student loans to save its members an average of $316 a month. You can learn more at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. Today's show is also brought to you by Videoblocks, a stock media company with clips everyone can afford. With Videoblocks, you get unlimited daily downloads from a library of 115,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and our favorite cinemagraphs. Everything is 100% royalty-free. You download all this stuff, and you keep it forever. Get your yearly subscription today for only $99 at videoblocks.com slash recode. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. We're brought to you by Digital Media. I'm here with Brian Goldberg, who has a bemused look on your face. Is that the right... I think so. the right so. adjective? I'm just so thrilled to be here. It's so gross out this morning, and here in the studio, it's so warm and safe. So it's, It is warm and safe. Smells like beer. It does. Well, you know what? That's better than being outside right now. I can take my coat off. It's great. Welcome to Recode Media, Brian Goldberg, CEO of Bustle. Yes. I've identified you correctly. Now we're done with the interview. That's it. You got it. You Nailed won. it. You won the $1,000 <laughs> prize. You, you looked at my LinkedIn. You run Bustle. What You describe what Bustle is for the handful sure. of people who don't know what Bustle is. Sure, sure. So, so Bustle is... Uh, the nation's largest media destination for young women. We are a multi-platform digital media company. We aim to reach young women. It's a company, an editorial team at least, that is almost entirely young women. So we write for and by the demographic we aim to reach. And you you are successful, I think, much to the surprise of some people who saw you stumble out of the gates, what, three years ago? (laughs) Well, I mean, if we're going to talk about people doubting and criticizing. We should go all the way back 12 years. No, no, we'll definitely go okay. all the way back. There, but, there's, this history goes, goes way back But here. for the top line, you're, you're three years old. Yeah. Uh, I read today in the Wall Street mm-hmm. Journal that you think you're going to do $30 million in revenue yeah. this year. Those, number, those numbers are correct. And we, yeah, we uh, just released those numbers. Things are going great. So it's, it's a three-year-old company, launched it in late 2013. And definitely some people were skeptical. We had our, our fair share of critics. We knew that we had an incredible idea, an incredible game plan, our team, which at the time was seven or eight people, incredible team, probably my greatest achievement in media was bringing together this early team at Bustle. Uh, we knew what we were doing, but a lot of people wondered, is there a market here? Is this the guy to do it? Is this the team to do it? I definitely wondered about you. People um, wondered about me. I want, I want to get into that, but let's let's just talk about what Bustle is, how yeah. you get to Bustle, um, as we'll talk about in sure. a minute. There are many places that serve up content aimed at yeah. young people, at yeah. young women. What makes your content different? How many people are going to read, how are going sure. to consume this stuff? Well, yeah, over 40 million monthly readers. That's that's on your site, on, that's on via Bustle. Facebook. Com. Yeah, no, that's, that's O&O, that's our destination itself. We also have a fairly new uh, site for moms called Romper. It's sort of the, uh, call it the older sister 40 site. million people at your website. So there's Correct. a difference between what you're doing and what a lot of people in media are doing, which yeah. is trying to go get a big audience away from your website. I mean, and we have, we have tremendous social reach. I mean, we're very strong on on Facebook and Pinterest and Instagram and, and Google as well. Um, but I like to talk about our O&O, the actual destination, which is over 40 million monthly readers. Why, um, why is that distinction important to you? Because I think this is an important part of your business I think it's plan. important to the, to the industry. I mean, look, it's apples to apples can be very difficult in the world of media. Everyone's kind of using the KPIs that suit them. People, Explain KPI for someone dumb or Key me. performance indicators. That or, means you went to business school or know I, someone I who does. I did not. I did much to my, to or my know father's someone who disappointment. Does. Yeah. No, no MBA for me. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. KPIs. So basically, when people talk about why their media company is successful, they like to point to any number of metrics – the one that's in vogue right now is how many platform video views your media company is doing. How many on social Facebook media. videos? How many videos, Facebook, basically. Yeah, and, and how many people looked at your video for many, three seconds? How many trillion video views you got this month 
uh, to your brand on someone else's platform. And look, that, that's, that is a KPI that exists. Nothing wrong with it. But I've always kind of felt that the KPIs that matter to media businesses, at least on the business side, should be revenue and ultimately profits. And so on the, I guess you could call it the audience side, people t- have traditionally looked at monthly unique visitors to your .com. And again, just to break this down, the, the reason is because if they're on your website, they can see an ad. Correct. I mean, it's, it's your advertising partners want to know what they're getting and, and they want to use, you know, even if media properties are not using common lingo and how they uh, trumpet their numbers, uh, the advertisers want to know they're playing on a consistent apples to apples playing field. And to that end, they want to know what is your audience, usually as refereed by Comscore on your site, what pricing are you getting for these ad placements? They, they want to know apples to apples so, how you compare. So before we go too far down to the, the rabbit yeah. hole, when you guys launched three years ago, you were mm-hmm. on many, many websites that was raising venture yeah. capital at the time, running media mm-hmm. companies. And at the time, the thing that most of these things had in common was they said, we are growing really fast. We're going to go really fast. We've figured out Facebook, usually yeah. in particular. We're going to go really fast there. Um, that sort of became codified the last couple yep. of years. Everyone said, no, we're, we're, all the growth is going to come away from websites. It's going to come mm-hmm. on Facebook and Snapchat and a digital platform to be named later. Yeah. You've intentionally said we want to grow on our websites. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, you said one of the things we want to do is, is use Google to yeah. bring people. And that, again, has, was sort of had been out of vogue for yeah. a while. Maybe it's coming back now. Mm-hmm. Why did you use that approach when people like Jonah Peretti were saying, no, this is yeah. all, it's Facebook? I mean, look, there, there was sort of a, there was a moment, call it from 2012 to 2014, where it called the easy traffic era of Facebook when, you know, Facebook's still a terrific platform for driving audience. It's, it's one of the very best ones. It's still a terrific place to consume content. But there was a moment around 2013, 2014 where the numbers just got wild. And it seemed like a pretty easy thing to do. To You showed up on Facebook and you you either gamed Facebook or mm-hmm. Facebook allowed you to game yeah. it or whatever. It was, it, it was, they were spewing out a lot of There were some tactics. Traffic. There were some, some headline tactics that were very effective for a while that, that have since simmered down. Basically, people thought it was really easy to start a media company around 2013, 2014. You started a media company, you got a bunch of massive number, millions of unique visitors on Facebook, and people thought it was that simple. And in fact, building a media company is incredibly difficult. Building a successful media company is one of the very hardest things you can do in any line of business. And I say that because a great media company is a complete left brain, right brain sort of enterprise. You need to have a deep, deep understanding of business and finance and be very strong quantitatively, but you also really? have to have a craft. You also, there's an artistic side, there's a literary side Most to it. people I know who start companies don't do math. Or at least, the, sorry, the media people don't do math. They got into media because they don't do math. They like to write yeah. or edit or take pictures and, and a lot talk people, about all that. A lot of people get into media either from an editorial path or from a sales path. Most, if you look at most media founders, they either started as a writer who, who decided to broaden into the business or they were a great ad seller who said, hey, I can do this, it won't be that hard and, and build one myself. Um, my You're back- kind of neither of those guys. Yeah, my background and my co-founder's background at Bleach Report is we had no media experience. Bleach Report is the company you started prior to My original to this. company, yes. So in 2005, I was 22 years old. Uh, my co-founders and I at Bleach Report got the best preparation possible for a career in media entrepreneurship, which is to say we'd never worked in media our entire lives, which in my opinion is what gave us the clean slate and this sort of this world of no You guys were early, notions. young 20-somethings, a couple of years out of school, and said, we want to make a sports site. Yeah, we, 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 were, do we were just out of college. We, so it was, it was a handful of my best friends from junior high. So you, you hear about founding stories with college friends yeah. or work friends, but not people who have known each other since they were 11 years old. We wanted to start a media company when we were 22 around sports. For better or for worse, we picked probably the most complex 
competitive category imaginable, which is sports, we had our, our idea of what a 21st century digital media company should look like. We'd never worked in media. We'd never worked in tech. So we had no preconceived notions as, as to how things ought to be done. And we put together a game plan for Bleacher Report in 2005, including a, a nice little business plan that I wish I could still find, but it's lost to history here. And we had an idea of what a real forward-thinking media company should look like. And we thought that content should be distributed. We understood that homepages were cool, but that content should be distributed to wherever people are finding and consuming content. We thought that a great site, for example, should link to other sites if we didn't have the content ourselves. We thought that we should engage and entertain and try to understand what people wanted to read. And we thought to ourselves as econ majors, and I was an econ major, and that's what I still think of myself as first as an economist, we thought, hey, we should be creating content that people actually want to read, and we shouldn't be creating content that others are already creating. And if you look at sort of those four or five pillars of what Bleacher Report set out to do, it really was sort of the foundation or called even the original game plan for what a true 21st century distributed digital media company has proven to be. Another way of describing what Bleacher yeah. Report did is you made, guys made a lot of content yes. aimed at people who were going to search for that content on Google. And you were very specific about sort of saying we are we – are, whether or not you were gaming Google or not, you, yeah. were, you, were, you were working to find what people wanted to find via search. Correct. Right? So, so you made a lot of it. A lot compared to some, not a lot compared to others. Okay. I won't use the word farm, but you made a lot of it. Yeah. You didn't pay people a lot to make it. You were unapologetic about Correct. that. And we're still unapologetic. Uh, and this became a very successful business. You sold it for mm-hmm. about $200 million Correct. to Turner, mm-hmm. Time Warner, who had a big website called sportsillustrated.com. Mm-hmm. They, they cut ties with it. They bought you guys they instead. Sure it seems like the plan for Bustle is something similar, which is mm-hmm. make a lot of content. Again, sort of aimed at what someone was looking for on yeah. Google. This time it's a different market. Yes. Um, again, you're not going out and hiring um, someone who might write for the New Yorker. You're hiring young people right out of school, not paying them enormous salaries. Is this something that you can replicate sort of market by market? Well, I think if, if you look at Bustle, I mean, we felt that, you know, yes, Bustle is a media destination. We're also a platform, though. We are a platform where we are hiring young women, sometimes as young as teenagers, uh, but typically just out of journalism school. And my thesis on day one and our thesis on day one was how are you going to reach a 22, 23-year-old young woman if your writers are not in that demographic? And I have tremendous regard for Cosmopolitan and Seventeen and some of these classic magazines, uh, which are just now starting to evolve uh, more competitively into digital, but as terrific and as many wonderful things as you can say about Joanna Coles at Cosmo, she's not in her demographic. And a lot of the people who are in editorial in Cosmo are not in their demographic. My thesis is that the best way to reach young women is to have young women doing the writing. In the same way that at Bleacher Report, we felt the best people to speak to an audience of of hungry sports fans were those who were fans themselves and knew those teams. So is this a formula you can – so once you have your yeah. tremendous success with Bustle and you sell yeah. it to someone else for hundreds of millions of dollars. Maybe, or or maybe, billions. Maybe even more. Let's give us a shot. And I've read repeated articles where you say, I'm going to do this three or four times in my life. Yeah. Is this – do you think you can keep replicating this? You can go find other markets that are underserved a couple, and, and do this? I, two years ago, I would have said yes. Now my thinking has changed. I absolutely love what I'm doing at Bustle. I'm having the most fun I've ever had in my life. I think I can say that the last three years of my life, I don't know if they're the best years of my life, but... So you're probably going to sell like in a month. No, I think we're not going to sell anytime soon. We're not not out there looking to sell this company. I think we have a lot further to go. And frankly, I think we sold Bleacher too early. I think most people think we sold Bleacher Port too early and at too low a price relative to 
what it's become. And I know the numbers now, and I know the numbers then, and we certainly sold it when it was a fraction of where it is today. Uh, I don't want to make that mistake again with bustle. I don't know if mistake's the right word, but I don't want to do that again with bustle. You got well compensated for that mistake. We, we, we did, we did. But I'm having, so, I had so much fun running Bleach Report, and after we sold it, I kind of realized that, hey, I had made some money, that's cool, but I really loved what I was doing every day at Bleacher Report, and I'll be honest, I'm having so much fun at Bustle right now, I love this company so much, I kind of don't want to go do something else anytime soon. I mean, invariably, yes, this company will probably get acquired by somebody. And unlike Bleacher Report, I'm going to want to hang out at Bustle for a while because I want to see it keep going. I, I, I love this company, we have so much fun at, at the office every day, we're having a Halloween costume contest today. and, and what no, you What's your costume going to be? That's the surprise. No, 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 no. no. This is coming out on Thursday. So what are you going to be? I don't know. They, I don't get to pick my costume. I'm showing up later today. A costume has been picked for me. I don't get to know what it is. I've been, I don't know what it your is. Your publicist is covering your head. I think it involves the word unitard. I don't know what it is. It's not already, my face is already red because I don't know what I'm going to be for Halloween at our Halloween party. Just like last year, I didn't get to choose my costume. All right, we're going to get a photograph and include <laughs> this in the story. But these are the sorts of things I love about this company. It's, it's so Ryan, much fun. Ryan, I think you can have day. a Halloween party when you sell this company. Perhaps I can, but I'm going to hang around. I'm not going to go do this three, four more times. Could I? Perhaps. But I think that there's something to be said for sticking with the company. And look, you know, you look at SB Nation versus Bleacher Report. Uh, you would have said back in 2012 that your parent company, Vox, went head-to-head with Bleacher Report. We got acquired. You know, big win for us at Bleacher Report. But you know what? Jim and the team at Vox have, have kept going. Jim, back off my boss. I'm talking about... I'm talking about hey, Jim. Hey, he Jim. Listens. You know, you might have said in 2012, hey, Bleacher Report won. We got acquired. Vox, SB Nation didn't. But guess what? Vox has stuck to its guns. It's kept growing. It, it just keeps on moving along. And now Vox sort of if and when it gets acquired, I think probably gets bought for a lot more than we sold Bleacher Report for. And that's what happens when you stay the course. So I plan to stay the course at Bustle and keep going with this thing. And if someone's going to buy it, we'll see. But we're having so much fun. We we literally are not thinking about this at all. So you guys are going to do $30 million this year. Recode Media does south of that, but we still make money from advertising. So we are going to hear from some refined advertisers right now. We'll be back in a minute. SoFi is a new kind of finance company. If you've worked hard to get the career you want, SoFi is here to offer you easy savings on the student loans that helped you get here. SoFi refinances federal and private student loans, and when it does that, its members save an average of $316 a month. Student loan refinancing is when you get a lower interest rate on a new loan and you use it to pay off the existing student loan. And with SoFi, there's never any origination fee or prepayment penalties on that new loan. So if you're looking to pay off student debt faster or get a lower monthly payment, or maybe even both, SoFi offers a range of options, so you can focus less on debt and more on the future. Find your rate at SOFI.com. That's SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. We'd like to welcome our newest sponsor, Lenovo, for supporting this podcast. Thank you, Lenovo. You make this podcast free. We appreciate that. The cloud is no longer just the place where you back up your phone. Businesses need the cloud to expand their computing power. Thanks to Lenovo Cloud Data Services, they can increase or decrease server capacity and horsepower on demand. That's a really big deal. You no longer need rooms of servers. You go to Lenovo, they rent you their servers. But your team can still test applications and stage products just like they do today. They just don't need the expensive hardware. Lenovo servers are number one in reliability and performance because this kind of flexibility is worthless if the service isn't there when you need it. Lenovo systems can even help you partner with your old vendors to create a smooth transition. Learn how Lenovo is transforming the data center at lenovo.com slash data center. Today's show is also brought to you by Videoblocks, a stock media company everyone can afford. 
With a video blog subscription, you get unlimited daily downloads from a library of 115,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and cinemagraphs. And one day I will learn what a cinemagraph is. On average, subscribers pay less than a dollar per download over the course of a year. It's the same stuff you find on more expensive sites. It's just cheaper. Cheaper is better than expensive. As a subscriber, you get everything 100% royalty-free, even if you cancel your subscription. So if you stop paying them, you still get to keep the content you downloaded from them forever. Videoblocks is offering my listeners a one-year subscription for $99. That's $50 off the usual price tag for my listeners only. That's you. Get your yearly subscription today for only $99 at videoblocks.com slash recode. That's videoblocks.com slash recode for this exclusive offer. We are back here from Recode Media with Bustle CEO Brian Goldberg, because he was talking about his Halloween costume. Yes. Again, I don't know what it's going to be, but my uh, the person who bought it for me at, at the office told me the budget was $300. So I'm, I'm, I can't I'm wait to see the photo. If now. Brian doesn't give me the photo, I'm going to ask uh, the people who work there to, to send uh, me one surreptitiously. Incriminating. Don't worry. There's no there's no footprints on the uh, or fingerprints on the internet. We've referenced this a few times. You're three years old. You yeah. launched three years ago. Yes. Um, maybe the worst possible launch you can make for a website. Perhaps. Perhaps. Uh, do you want to say in your own words what you did wrong? Well, look, look. So so we launched the site. There was there was a lot of criticism from a lot of prominent women in in tech and media. Most of whom are now my friends. So you know Rachel Sklar, Elizabeth Spires, uh, people I have a lot of regard for, and I'm now friends with. But got off to sort of a a very interesting beginning because well you got to look at you got to look at the, the climate here so this was about me but it was also about something a lot bigger and broader which is that you know for women starting companies raising venture capital it's tough out there and, and they face a lot of of obstacles and frustrations that exist in 2013 and unfortunately still exist three years later not nearly enough progress has been made here women represent a small small percentage of VCs and so this was a big national conversation and this female-oriented website launches, and I'm sure people would have loved to have seen a female founder for a website that reaches primarily young women, and I add to that the fact that I'm a very loud, competitive person, and it, it just created sort of a vibe that that uh, raised a lot of questions, but, you So know, let's, let's fill in the blanks for people who, who yeah. didn't follow this stuff on the internet three years ago. It's not just that you launched, right? Mm-hmm. It's that you launched... You specifically, Brian Goldberg, launched. Yes. There was a small community of people who knew you. A lot of people didn't. Yeah. You wrote a post where you basically mm-hmm. said, I, Brian Goldberg, have invented the women's well, I, I website. I was a columnist at the time for Pando Daily. So right. it wasn't sort of a random one-off post. No, no, you'd, run, you'd written many posts. Yeah. And again, people who'd followed you were irked by those posts. But let's skip yeah. that part. You basically positioned yourself as someone who was creating a women's website. No mm-hmm. such thing really had existed before or nothing that had ever done sort of high-low. Um, here, I got the quote here. Isn't it time for a women's publication that puts world news and politics alongside beauty tips? And then so you just – every woman who'd ever worked in media mm-hmm. said, you fucking idiot. Actually, Elizabeth Spires, you said, said is now your friend, said, for fuck's sake, Goldberg, read some goddamn women's sites. On and on and on. So I think there was a combination of, of the arrogance on this yep. guy and then I think a lot of uh, women particularly yep. who worked at these sites felt slighted because you were you were not acknowledging their, their contributions. Uh-huh. I think like a day later you wrote, you wrote an apology note. Yeah. Well, yeah, I wrote an apology the next day because, you know, my, my intentions were good. I was excited uh, launching a, a new product. And, you know, I don't think I'm obliged to list every single one of my competitors when I launch a new product, but could have done more. And to by the way, in some, in some places, if you say, I'm here and I'm here to kick everyone's asses, everyone, yeah. everyone say, oh, that's, well, exactly. that's all right. Uh, look, I grew up in Silicon Valley, and I, I've said this before. When you grow up in Silicon Valley and you say to your parents, hey, I want to start the next great company. I want to bring down Microsoft. I want to bring down Condé Nast. They'll be like, oh, that's sweet. You know, you're really going for it. That's the Silicon Valley out to w- take over the world and beat everyone 
attitude, and, and that attitude was not appropriate for this particular world, for this, for this. You wanted some faux humility there? I, Maybe not your voice at all. Well, look, that was not the right messaging out of the gate, no doubt about it. And I apologize a day later saying, look, the tone was off. I didn't talk enough about the women I've hired. I should have talked more about the landscape that preexisted. And, and, you know, look, actually, I'll tell you something, Peter. I think apologizing is great. I think it's one of the best feelings in the world when you screw up and you don't try to spend the next couple of months trying to talk your way out of a circle or, or try to, you know, you say something, the wrong words came out, you, you didn't maybe approach it the way you wanted to, and then you just apologize and you move on. Because look, at the end of the day, I knew at Bustle we had one of the best plans ever put together in digital media. We had an incredible team I was so proud of. We had amazing technology, and I knew we were going to do great things and didn't really need the distraction of, of any boasts or, or critical reception distracting from that narrative. But you actually, like you said, like Elizabeth, uh, sorry, Rachel Sklar is not your friend, Elizabeth yeah. Spires. You, you actually went out on sort of yeah. a campaign for a while trying to sort of either make amends or, or win them over and, and, and you donated money to charities and you took people to lunch. Yeah. This was a long process for you to sort of win over yeah. these people who had criticized well, you at the that, beginning. Yeah, that's one way to look at it. I, th- I think in hindsight, my, my biggest regret is I didn't do those things before launching. You know, I, I, had, I had for months had wanted to reach out to Rachel Sklar and, and several others and say, hey, I'm Brian, here's who I am, here's what I'm doing, I'd love your feedback. And Do you think they would have listened to you? Well, I, th- I think they would have given me feedback, and I would have I would have learned some of these lessons a little earlier. But look, Rachel's someone I talked to all the time. I think we were texting a bunch this weekend about about uh, that was something the news or whatever. And and I've learned a lot from Rachel, and and she's great. And I wish I'd met her a different way. I wish that I had met her through just a an email introduction, not through a nationally publicized back and forth with criticism. But but yeah, there's a lot to learn from everyone. Look, I'm I I'm always learning. I think that's one of the reasons I have been successful is I'm not afraid to learn. I'm not afraid to take a few punches. And if you look at the results, if you look at the success of Bleacher Report, did we get criticized a lot in the early days? Yes, we did. But rather than just arrogantly deflect all that criticism, we took it to heart. We learned from it. We took signals from the market. And in the end, Bleacher Report was a phenomenal success and is, in my opinion, uh, the leading digital media sports property because... We listen to people. Are you, are, you, are you someone who likes sports from the get-go? I, I was a huge sports fan. Now I'd say I am a much less but still somewhat so of a sports So you graduate, fan. where'd you go to college? Uh, Middlebury College. Middlebury, famous uh, hotbed. Where, with uh, Middlebury kicker Steve Hauschka is, is the best kicker in the NFL. So we have, we have an NFL player at Middlebury. God bless Steve Hauschka. <laughs> uh, so you, you graduate college, you say, I'm, I want to make a web sports mm-hmm. thing natural. Yeah. How do you get to, I want to create a digital property aimed at women? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, well, it's a very different founding story. I mean, Bleacher Report has an origin story exactly, you think. You know, some, some young guys who are big sports fans get together and start their dream property. I think Bustle was, and so it's a very different business challenge. What's been... But how does it even get on your radar? How, I'm, I'm, well, presumably like you, So you go out and say, I yeah. want to make another thing. Yeah. And did you have a list of, here's 12 different things I want to make? Yeah, I mean, this was, this was some extraordinarily thorough market analysis. What else did you look at? Well, I looked at the entire industry. I started with, I, I'm going to tell you something that maybe it's a little cheesy. I started with the Mary Meeker slide. And you know which one I'm talking about. Mary Meeker does a presentation every year at Kleiner Perkins. And one so of the she, most, did, she does it at the Code Conference. At the Code Conference. I didn't, I didn't want to plug you guys, but there you go. I'll plug myself. Okay, okay. Well, you can plug yourself, but I'm, I'm going to say that the Mary Meeker presentation, I saw it in, I, th- I think, 2012. And, I, and if you look at this one very famous slide that shows all of this, the, the mediums of advertising, print, mobile, radio, et cetera, and the index of the attention paid versus the right. revenue generated, you'll see that everything's in, in somewhat parity except for print, 
which represents about four or five percent of people's attention. So all this, right? There's and all like eighteen percent of the revenue. Right. All the eyeballs have moved over to the internet. It's, it's already but happened. The but have the not dollars followed. have not. This, then that slide never changes. And that slide changes very slowly. And I looked at that and I said, if someone's going to start another media company in the year 2013, that problem needs to be what's addressed. I, like I said, I'm an economist. I'm an entrepreneur. At Most heart, people, by the way, look at that problems. slide and say, look at all that money in TV. Yeah. There's $80 billion or whatever the number that's is. The wrong and I'm going to make video. And you're not yeah. really doing no, video I at all. No, I think that's ridiculous. I think you look at that chart and you say, where's there a problem? Where, where's something incongruent? And you look at that and you say, hey, wait a minute. There's still 30 plus billion dollars in print advertising when very, very few people are reading newspapers and magazines in physical form. And I think every good company starts with a really big problem from a business standpoint. There is a big business problem that still exists where major brands are trying to get money out of print and into digital and mobile, and someone needs to sort of hold their hand and usher them out of print and into digital. That was, at the highest level, what Bustle was trying to achieve and has since achieved with great success. And, and that's, if I can read your mind, what you were thinking when you were writing that post, yeah. which wasn't, we're going to go crush the toast yeah. and we're going to go crush no. Jezebel. It's what, we're coming after Meredith mm-hmm. and Time Inc. And Condé and, 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 and Condé. And, and look, those companies are great, but I don't think any of them have done enough to migrate those dollars out of physical print format into digital. And to be, you know, I try to be humble with some of these things, but look, at Bleacher Report, we went head to head against ESPN and the leagues. That's really tough competition. With Bustle, I said, you know, with for, with all due respect to Hearst and Meredith and Condé Nast and Time, I think that there's... So you look at the Merrymaker slide, the Merrymaker slide says to you, again, yeah. big opportunity in print, Correct. and you say, how can I move that money from print to me? Correct. Um, and you just naturally go to women? Well, if you look at, look, if you... And not luxury if watches you analyze, or If you analyze business. that industry, if you analyzed where the success remains, Meredith is an incredibly successful company. They still make a lot of profits at Meredith. They, their audience at Meredith is almost entirely women. Uh, it's mass market. Uh, if you look at if you look at Hearst, Cosmopolitan is the flagship title. If you look at Time Inc., it's People that is the flagship title. So I don't think it's really a secret that women possess tremendous economic power. Young women especially possess tremendous economic power. And that manifests itself, at least in the print industry, in these very well-known women's magazines. And again, traditionally, if you say, all right, I'm going to do women's magazine, I'm Brian Goldberg, I'm a mm-hmm. dude, I, you're famous mm-hmm. in, in, in these series, what of, I am. series I what of stories I am. you did, you profess to not know anything about this mm-hmm. stuff. Normally, you go hire Joanna Coles, or you hire yeah. the next Joanna Coles. You didn't do that. I mean, you hired smart, yeah. good women, but they, you didn't go out and sort of get marquee names. Again, is that intentional? Well, yes. I mean, I, I hired the head of editorial, Kate Ward, who was the perfect person. She, I interviewed 60 or 70 women for the role. She was number one on my on my big board. She's the person I wanted. Was she famous? No. She had like 700 Twitter Right. Followers. Normally you get a famous person and that sort of justifies your existence or helps, but, helps but prop up your existence. But that's not what I wanted. I, that's exactly what I didn't want, was to go hire someone whose greatest skill was bringing fame and attention to herself. Kate Ward it was the perfect editor. She has, in, in addition to a terrific work ethic, I mean, uh, she works seven days a week, one of the hardest workers I've ever met. She's primarily focused on elevating the young women around her. She's focused on building the bustle brand. She's focused on running the day-to-day. She she could be on a panel every day if she wanted to. She's not because she needs to be in the office helping and supporting she's the team around her. She's not running her own podcast. She's, no, she's, and I don't do the, a lot of this either, by the way. You are, you are very fortunate, Peter, because I do maybe one 
interview per year. The Recode Media audience is very fortunate. You guys are all very fortunate. I don't like to do a lot of interviews and panels. I like to build my companies. And I think that's one of the reasons Bustle has succeeded so much. And that culture, certainly that view is shared by Kate, our editor-in-chief, because she likes to get work done. She doesn't want to be on panels and be interviewed on the radio all day. And, and gets her fewer Twitter followers, but makes her better what she does. There are a lot of digital media companies that start up um, with very little limited resources. Yeah. They build themselves and they, they make content quickly and mm-hmm. cheaply and they find what people like and they make more of it and they yeah. do it efficiently. And then there's sort of a path they can take. They can either say, all right, it's time for us to level up and mm-hmm. now we're going to do real content or we're going to hire some expensive people mm-hmm. or we're going to continue to do that, but we're going to justify that by going out and hiring yeah people from the New York Times, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Or they just say, we're just going to keep making more of the thing that people want. You yeah. seem to be in the second category. I don't see you hiring people it's from not, the Times or, our or style anywhere at, like that. Yeah, it's not our style of bustle to go throw big dollars at a, at a famous writer uh, because she's a star or she's on TV or she has a million Twitter followers. We are much more interested in discovering and elevating undiscovered stars. And, and by the way, we have a lot of IP at Bustle. We have a lot of sort of things we do that very few can do as well as us. And one of the things we're best at is finding stars in finding young women who are 21, 22, 23 years old, just out of college. And when we go to these career fairs and we receive hundreds of resumes a week from young women who want to be writers and want to get paid to write a bustle, being able to comb through that to create first the the pipeline where we're getting hundreds of resumes a week and then to be able to sift through those and and find the writers we think are going to be talented, you don't, you know, because these women don't have eight years of experience to, to go by. That's really hard to do. It's one of the sort of pieces of RIP that make us who we are. And we've been thrilled. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great place to work. People rarely leave Bustle once they start working here because it's a lot of fun. But we also have done a great job of identifying talent. So, no, it is absolutely not in our DNA. Because even in Bleacher Report, eventually you guys went and hired guys from the Times. Although I think they yeah. pretty much stopped doing that. And they said the people who find us on Facebook or Google yeah. aren't coming to read so-and-so. So so that's that's a good point. In, in around 2012, 2013, after Bleacher Report had been acquired by Turner and had more resources, frankly, uh, they were able to hire some, some, uh, some bigger name writers out of CBS, out of the New York Times. And if you look at how Bleacher Report has continued to evolve... That's all good and well, but where Bleach Report has really shined has been on creating original animation to put on social platforms. Some, you know, funny videos on Facebook. If you look at Instagram, Bleach Report is dominant on Instagram, completely dominant on Instagram. And they do a lot of animated memes. And so Bleach Report sort of found its voice. Right. So they hired Mike Wise from New York Times. He's a great basketball writer, yeah. but he's not creating Instagram content for them. He's probably not creating Instagram memes, and, and, and they're probably fortunate to have him. But I think for millions of everyday fans, and Bleach Report has always resonated with, with everyday fans, they love the memes on Instagram. They love the hilarious jokes about the Warriors being villains or, or uh, you know, making fun of Michael Jordan crying, whatever that meme happens to be. Bleach Report has always been a very grassroots company that reaches everyday everyday fans. And that's the style. And I think Bleach Report, to give us credit, you know, now in its whatever 11th, 12th year, has always stuck to its DNA. And that's exactly what we try to do at Bustle. And I hate to say it, Peter, but if you look at a lot of other successful venture-backed media companies in the last few years, a lot of them have pivoted pretty hard around their brands. A lot of them are not the same voice and brand they were two years ago, three years ago. I'm not going to call any names out, but I think you can guess. Kind of the whole point of this podcast is for name calling. Well. One name. Come on. No, I think, I think, well, look. I say it's pretty much everyone. So you know what? I'm going to say there really isn't any media brand outside of Bleacher Report and Bustle the last couple of years who haven't had to pivot or say now we're this, now we're that. Maybe a few, but I'd say... Here, Mashable's an easy target. 
Mashable is an easy target. You know, they're incredibly successful, and I think the world of BuzzFeed, but they're a very different company they now than they were two years ago. Um, I don't think we share any Time Warner. BuzzFeed. Time Warner's in BuzzFeed? No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Mashable. I'm sorry. Mashable, yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah. Mashable's, Mashable's Mashable. a very good company, too, but they have who they are and what they're about has changed the last couple of years. BuzzFeed is now BuzzFeed. You know, Thrillist, I have tremendous regard for Ben Lair. He's, he's a world-class media entrepreneur, but they have changed who they are and what their voice is the last few years. And I, and I think you get a lot of points for pivoting and innovating and evolving. And I think that's part of being a great entrepreneur is evolving who you are and not being afraid to make big changes. But one thing I'm proud of with Bustle and Bleach Report is I think we've stuck to our DNA. We, we are who we said we were from day one. And I think there's something to be said for that as well. So one thing that almost everyone is doing, I think yeah. everyone is doing, except you, mm-hmm. is either spending a lot of money to mm-hmm. figure out video or mm-hmm. saying they figured out video. Yeah. Video is the future. Uh, Facebook mm-hmm. says it's the future. We're going to uh, mm-hmm. spend all our time consuming video on Facebook. I'm sure there is a bustle video, mm-hmm. but it's not what you guys are focused on. And again, if you go back to yeah. that, that Mary Meeker report, mm-hmm. there's all that money on TV, and it's mm-hmm. obvious to everyone that all that money is going to come to the internet, so let's create video that will eventually soak up that money. Why aren't you yeah. doing that? Well, we, yeah, we, let me be very clear. We do have a video team, and we have uh, Bianca's our head of video. She's great, and we just released a really cool docu-series called Not Safe for Women. Uh, it did very well this last week. But yeah, compared to BuzzFeed Most or people Thrillist, are trying to figure out video at scale. Yeah, some we're, not, we're not doing nearly as much video as, as some of the others out there who are venture-backed, to the point where maybe you could call us a conferrian just as a matter of scale. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is, as I said, most of our advertising partners have a deep history and deep legacy in print, so they care often as much about beautiful photo shoots as they do about TV commercials. A lot of them are not focused on creating 15 and 30-second video pre-rolls that can port easily from TV to digital. Uh, so a lot a lot in the fashion, beauty, CPG categories have a deep history of photography more so than video. You'll see a lot of billboards, for example, a lot of magazine spreads. So in that sense, we're evading it, the issue a little bit, which I'm fine with. Uh, in fact, I that's one of the reasons why I love this category is, is you're just not as tied to the idea of taking dollars from television, and therefore you're not. it's not as critical that video be at the center of your focus. I am skeptical that digital media startups can take big dollars from big TV companies because when I look at uh, the CBSs of the world, when I look at the Foxes of the world, when I look at the Bravos of the world, they're creating some really great TV. I mean, I, I'll i be the first to admit I, I'm a, one of those guilty pleasure guys who watches Bravo with some frequency. That's great television. Uh, they're you, creating a lot of you, quality what's, television. What's your show? Are you a I, I, I like guy? I like the real estate ones. I love Million yeah, Dollar Listing. Like I, I, I love watching, you know, it, it's 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 a little silly, yes, but it's fun to watch. Their costs to create that content, by the way, are not terribly high. Right. Uh, it's just fun, engaging content. You can watch three or four episodes back to back on a lazy Sunday. And that's great television. And I just wonder, all these startups that have raised 10, 20, 50, 100 million dollars, are they going to go be better at being Bravo than Bravo. I think is. the thesis is in the, they can in, before they get there they can they can pick up some of the stuff that Bravo isn't showing or stuff that's on the middle of the the Perhaps. cable guy that you never watch. And they're watch. certainly and a lot of them are certainly hoping they will be acquired by a large media company. So right, and you've, and you've got NBC Universal who's invested yeah. in, in my company Vox Media in part I guess with that mm-hmm. thesis. The same thing with BuzzFeed, etc. You're seeing a lot of these people make that kind of move. Well, you tell me how do you run a 30 second pre roll in a 20 second video? I don't know, but you can go see it on Twitter. Unfortunately, well, fine, but. But I mean, there's a lot still to figure out yep. for those who are all in on going 100% headlong into video. We're doing a lot of great video, and, and I'm actually encouraging our video team. Uh, I'm very arm's length from our video, but I say, look, I'd rather see us create four or five minute videos we're really proud of with less frequency than pumping out 100 short form videos a day that last for 20 seconds. So you sold Bleacher Report for $200 million, yes. made a bunch of money. 
your second time entrepreneur, I think is one of the things people never really talk about yeah. when, when they talk about exits and what yeah. it means. So because you've made some money, yes. you have resources now, how does that change the way you're going to approach the sale of Bustle when and if, and you will sell yeah. it eventually? I just want you to say that yeah. this is the case. I'm assuming that it's because you have money, yeah. you can go longer, you can take bigger bets. It's going to change the way you approach that transaction. That's true. But there is one important question you're not asking me, which is how much of the money I made from Bleacher Report did I then pour into Bustle? And the answer Tell is me. a fair amount. Yep. So I, I'm Are playing, you poor? I'm not poor. I'm, I'm doing fine. I mean, fine. I, you know, I, I didn't own a ton of Bleacher Report when we sold it. I had several co-founders. We had raised money in, during the recession at some unfavorable valuations, I st- but I still did well. I don't want to trivialize you know, what, what ended up being a very good payday. But I've taken a lot of that money and put it into Bustle. So, so I'm all in on Bustle, and, and I'm not only a founder and big shareholder via common shares, I also am one of the largest investors in Bustle with my, with my own money. And I, I'm a big believer in, in putting your money where your mouth How is. How much have you put in? Personally, my, my personal amount, it's in the, the high six figures. High six figures. That. Which, which is a lot for me. I, mean, I didn't make as and much. And you can as still people. pay your rent. I can still pay my rent. Correct. So I put a lot of money into into Bustle because I believe in it, and I haven't taken any liquidity along the way. I didn't really pay myself a salary till last year, so I'm truly all in on the company, and we're not in a hurry to sell it. Mostly because we're having so much fun. I, I, if it, if a buyer came who I didn't like, and they offered us a lot of money, and they offered us you know enough to put an incredible amount of money in my pocket in the pockets of the employees and investors. I wouldn't sell the company if we didn't really, really like the buyer. Uh, to me, the profile of the buyer, whether this is a place I want to spend the next few years of my life, whether a place I can credibly hand this company, hand Bustle over to, Bustle is my baby. I would not sell it. I can say with a straight face, if someone we didn't like or someone I didn't respect came and threw a ton of money at us, I probably wouldn't take the deal, mostly because I'm just having too much fun. I don't want to end this. You know, I had Brian Lamb from Wirecutter in here this spring, and he was talking yeah. about how much fun it was to run that business, and then he sold it. Well, I think, I think in his case, I think that was probably a good move because I don't think, you know, first of all, I imagine he has a great deal of regard for the New York Times. So, so my guess is he was very excited by the prospect of, of teaming up with the New York Times. You know, your thesis isn't wrong. I mean, I can hold out longer than others can hold out for sure. Um, I'm not, you know, living paycheck to paycheck here. But I, like I said, the number one consideration when we sell this company is going to be who is the buyer? Do we want to work with them? Do I want to spend the next four or five years of my life being an executive at that acquiring company? Will they let us continue to be us, hopefully keep our office, those sorts of things? Do they love Bustle? Is that why they're buying the company? Making a ton of money? Look, I think we'll do fine either way. I think that Bustle, the shareholders and the employers are going to have a really good outcome here. So I'm not terribly worried about the financial side of this. I will focus on, does this make sense? And by the way, let's give me and my team at Bleach Report some credit here. We found a great buyer, not just in terms of price tag, but Turner has done amazing things with Bleacher Report. I'd say that it has been an A plus. Inter- probably, would you agree? They're putting a bunch of money into it, some, and, and they yeah. are actually be able to rehire one of your co-founders who left and come back and said, "We're, yeah. we're taking this really seriously. Come back and work." They're with doing us. everything they can. Most of the people are still there, by the way. I mean, we have people who I hired back in two thousand nine who are still at Bleach Report, stepping up their roles there. I think you would agree that there has not been a media M and A success story, at least in the last ten years, that has topped Bleach Report and Turner. Would you agree that that is probably the most successful? large-scale media M&A case study we have in the last decade? Well, I don't know if I can rank them, but what, what typically what happens is yeah. big company buys the small digital company. Yes. It all breaks and goes away, and everyone sort of walks away in a couple of years, and they say, oh, of course that happened when someone goes and looks back because yeah. this never works out. And it yeah. does seem like it's working out. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's gone great. I'm very, I'm very proud of, of Bleach. I'm proud of what Turner's done. They, they did what they said they would do. I mean, I've, I've 
I don't think they're going to buy my company, so I'm not, I don't have a horse in this race. But um, they certainly aren't going to be able to for the next year and a half while they sort through this, uh, this AT&T thing. So in a fully unencumbered way, I can say that I'm very happy with them. I'm very pleased that they... Time Warner, sure. Time Warner is an investor, so you're a little they are, they are, but they, you know, they, look, I'm saying, from the, I'm saying it truly and candidly. They bought the company. They bought it with an eye towards not screwing it up to supporting it the best they could, and they have supported it incredibly well. They've gotten involved where they should get involved. They've stayed hands-off where they should be hands-off, and their reward is that the company's worth a lot more than they paid for it. Brian, you're not a modest person. You said that code, uh, Recode Media listeners are lucky to have you join us, and you know what? You're right. <laughs> <laughs> this was a ton of fun. Thank are we, you. Are we done already? I mean, Time the, flies. The, the Jason Hirschhorn record is an hour. We're not going to get to it today. Sorry. Jason, you were still the winner. Oh. Um, but this is super fun. One day. Thanks for cool. joining us. Well, thank you, Peter. Thank, thank you, you guys for listening. Thank you guys for listening. If you like this interview, you know this, but you can go find many more like this. There's one with, say, Frank from BuzzFeed, who's doing video, unlike Brian. John Favreau from Keeping It 1600. That's super fun. You can even listen to it after the election. You'll still enjoy it. John Gruber from Derek Fireball is on. All these things are fun and they're free, so you can go listen to them whenever you want. Here's our ask. Subscribe. Rate us. Um, the best thing you can do is tell a friend about this stuff. That is how we get distribution. There's also cool stuff from Kara Swisher and Lauren Good, but you know all that because you're smart because you listen to this podcast. Thanks also to our sponsors, SoFi, Videoblocks, and our new sponsor, Lenovo. How about that, tech? Uh, thanks to Digital Media, who helps distribute all this. Thanks to my son, Benjamin, who's been sitting here quietly the entire time. Not a noise. Ben, come say hello. Hello. Wow, that is a very high voice. How old have you been? Eight years old. Okay, that is an eight-year-old boy podcasting. I think we just violated some sort of work code. Thanks, Ben. See ya. It's a young man, a few words. We'll be back here with another awesome guest. No more eight-year-olds, though. See you next week. <laughs>